Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. You think we're still good on time? Absolutely. We're on the right car to just jump off, run up the stairs, and out the station. Trust me. All right. Best part about seeing a show at the St. James Theater? You can just walk right out of the 44th Street subway station and into the line for the show. Okay, you were right. This did work out perfectly. Honestly, I can't believe we were able to get tickets to the show. Hottest ticket in town right now. I'd call us lucky. I can't wait to see it. It's all anybody has been able to talk about for the longest time. Well, now we can be included with them. I'm most excited about seeing Gary again. He's truly one of my favorite people. Well then, let's not dilly-dally and head inside. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the mega blockbuster, The Producers. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Join us now as we keep it light. Keep it bright, keep it gay, because today we are going to take you back to 2001 and to a landmark show that ushered in the new millennium and a new chapter in the tomes of the theater. We are, of course, referring to the Mel Brooks mega-hit musical, The Producers. It took Broadway by storm and left a lasting impression on the world that is still resonating to this day. Stemming from the ingenious mind of Mel Brooks, the producers the musical was based on the 1967 film of the same name. David Geffen was the one who persuaded Brooks to take the film from the screen to the stage. Mel Brooks, who wrote both the music and lyrics, would also partner on the book with Thomas Meehan. For the role of director and choreographer, the great Susan Stroman would be enlisted. The rest of the design team would be assembled as followed. Sets by Robin Wagner. Lights by Peter Kagzorworski. Sound by Stephen C. Kennedy. Costumes by William Ivy Long. Hair by Paul Huntley. And makeup by Randy Houston Mercer. With the design team assembled and the amazing and talented cast amassed, the show rehearsed was polished and finally arrived on Broadway on April 19th, 2001 at the St. James Theater. To say that the show was a hit is an understatement. It was the first blockbuster of the new millennium and raised the bar on what a smash musical on Broadway was. The show broke box office records for largest single-day ticket sales in theater history, taking in more than $3 million. The producers was nominated for a record-breaking 15 Tony Awards. Only two other shows have come close to being nominated with so many. 
Billy Elliot tied with the producers, receiving 15, and in 2016, Hamilton beat out the producers for most nominations, earning 16 Tony nominations. However, Hamilton would not walk away with more Tony wins than the Mel Brooks comedy. The producer still retains the title of most Tony award-winning musical in the history of Broadway theater, winning 12 Tony awards, which include best musical, best score, best orchestrations, best choreography for Susan Stroman, best scenic design by Robin Wagner, and best direction, Susan Stroman. Also, best costume design, William Ivy Long, Best Lighting Design, Peter Kagzaworski. Best Book of a Musical. Best Feature Actress in a Musical, Caddy Huffman. Best Feature Actor in a Musical, Gary Beach. And finally, Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Musical, Nathan Lane. With all the notoriety and numerous awards, it's no wonder the show would see such huge success and extend its run on Broadway. The show would run for six years and 2,502 performances, closing on April 22nd, 2007. Wow. That was a lot to cover, and we are only just getting started. But let's delve into the story itself. In 1959, New York City theater producer Max Bialystok opens Funny Boy, which is a musical version of Hamlet. We hear the song Opening Night. The show is absolutely terrible, and the show closes after only one performance. Max, who was once called the King of Broadway, tells a crowd of down-and-outs this while listing his past achievements and makes a vow to return to his former glory. The next day, Max is visited by a mousy accountant named Leo Bloom, whom has come to audit his books. While he is there, one of Max's little old lady investors arrives. Max tells Leo he must wait in the bathroom until she leaves. While Leo is in the bathroom, the little old lady plays a sex game with Max, who is persuading her to give him a check to be invested in his next play to be called Cash. That's a very odd name for a play. But of course, so was the Iceman Cometh. (laughs) After she leaves, Leo reveals that he has had a lifelong dream of wanting to be a Broadway producer. While revealing his secret, Max touches a blue blanket that the accountant keeps on him at all times, thus sending Leo into a panic attack. After recovering from the attack, Leo tells Max that he has found an accounting error in the book. Max has raised $100,000 for Funny Boy, but the play only cost $98,000. This leads Max to beg Leo to cook the books to hide the discrepancy, and Leo reluctantly agrees. Leo does some quick calculations and realizes that under the right circumstances, a producer could actually make more money with a flop than with a hit, such as if you raised a million dollars and you put on your hundred thousand dollar flop and then you keep the rest max proposes a scheme step one we find the worst play ever written step two we hire the worst director in town step three we raise two million dollars one for me one for you there's a lot of little old ladies out there step four we hire the worst actors in new york and open on broadway and before you can say step five we close on broadway take our two million and go to rio However, Leo refuses to help Max in his scheme. He heads back to work and is unfortunately six minutes late. His boss, Mr. Marks, cruelly reminds him that he is a nobody. While he commiserates with his co-workers slaving slaving over accountants and accounting, Leo daydreams of becoming a Broadway producer in I Want to Be a Producer. This leads him into realizing that his job is terrible, and he quits and goes back to Max's office. 
The two spend the next day searching for the worst play ever written. While looking through their piles of scripts, Max finds what he calls a surefire flop that is guaranteed to offend people of all races, creeds, and religions. The show is called Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Ava at Berchtesgaden, written by ex-Nazi Franz Liebken. He sums up the script to Leo by calling it a love letter to Hitler. Well, so the two men go to the playwright's home in Greenwich Village to obtain the rights to the show. They find Franz in his tenant roof uh, with his pigeons, reminiscing about the good old days. The producers convince him to sign their contract by singing Adolf Hitler's favorite tune with the former Nazi, Der Gutentag Hopklop. They also make a promise by reciting the Siegfried Oath under penalty of death to never dishonor the spirit and memory of Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. Not many people know this, but the Fjord was a fantastic dancer. With the show rights secured, Max takes Leo to the townhouse of the worst director in New York, a flamboyant and gay man named Roger Debris. Roger and his common-law assistant, Carmen Gia, decline the original offer because the subject material is too serious. They insist that for a show to succeed, you must keep it gay. Max tells Roger that this could be the show that could be the show that wins him a Tony. Roger sees the possibilities and agrees, but says the second act must be rewritten so that the Germans win World War II. Max and Leo return to the office where they meet a Swedish beauty who wants to audition for the next play. Her name is Ulla Inka Hansen Benson Janssen Tallinn Holland Svaden Svensson. Yeah. <laughs> she auditions for the men by singing When You Got It Flaunted. Obviously impressed by her um, <clears throat> talent, they hire her to be her secretary slash receptionist. Max then goes on a mission to raise $2 million for Springtime for Hitler by calling on all of the little old ladies of New York, which is successful and ends Act 1. Act 2 starts with Leo and Ula alone in Max's office after being redecorated by Ula, all in white. The two start to fall in love. Max returns to the office and we see him falling in love with Ula's um, <clears throat> backside. The group then holds auditions for the title role of Hitler, which brings out the worst of the worst in actors and all are rejected by Roger. Franz comes out and performs his own jazzy rendition of Hoppensieger Hirsch das Deutsche Span. And Max commends his performance by shouting, That is our Hitler! When opening night finally arrives, the cast sings a song about It's bad luck to say good luck on opening night. Which is concluded by Franz falling down the stairs and Broke my leg! This leaves only one person who knows the part of Hitler who can replace him, Roger Debris. As the curtains rise, Max and Leo prepare to watch the theatrical disaster unfold before him, before them. Springtime for Hitler, to their dismay. Roger's over-the-top campy performance leaves the audience in tears. With all the added humor, the audience mistakes the show for satire, and the show becomes a overnight success. Back at the office, we see a near-suicidal Max and Leo singing Where Did We Go Right? Roger and Carmen enter to congratulate the men, only to find them fighting over the accounting books. Just as we think things couldn't possibly get worse, Franz bursts in, waving a pistol with murder in his eyes. He's outraged by Roger's portrayal of his beloved Führer. Max suggests that he shoot the actors, yeah, the actors, and not himself, as a way to get the show closed. The police overhear the commotion and arrest Franz, who breaks his other leg while trying to escape. They also arrest Max and take the books as evidence while Leo hides. Ula finds Leo, 
and persuades him to take the $2 million and run away to Rio with her. While Max is in jail awaiting trial, he receives a postcard from Leo explaining what happened after he was arrested. Max sings the song Betrayed, in which he recounts the whole show. At his trial, Max has been found incredibly guilty. Before the judge can give Max his sentence, the newlyweds, Leo and Ula, arrive to tell the judge that Max is a good man and has never actually hurt anyone, maybe just swindled them. The judge is touched by this and decides it's best not to separate the partners. He decides to send Leo, Max, and Franz to Sing Sing Prison for five years. Making the most of a bad situation, they write a new musical called Prisoners of Love, which makes it all the way to Broadway, starring Roger and Ula. The governor, loving the show so much, pardons the pair. Knowing that they have become kings of Broadway, Leo and Max walk off into the sunset. The show ends with the whole cast coming back on stage for one last song, Goodbye, where they tell the audience that they need to leave now. And that's the show. Yeah. So we got to talk about, now Now we got to talk about, you know, what we like, what we hate. So, you know, what we like. I, let I mean, me... the show is just so sim- simple, yet, like, there's a ton of layers to it. Look, Mel Brooks can't do wrong. No. Mel no. Brooks, <laughs> Mel Brooks, Mel Brooks is comedy. Mel Brooks has this down to a T and everything compliments everything it's ex- everything is perfect it's, it's like when you bake that perfect cake and you have just the right amount of ingredients and everything and everything complements itself that is exactly what this show is mm-hmm. it's the right amount of offensive mixed with right amount of humor and love and everything it's it is the complete love letter to broadway it do, you can't like it can be offensive, but not offensive, if that makes sense. Like, no one, no one's truly going to be that offended by the show, but at the same time, it's like, well, that might offend someone. Nah. <laughs> you know, is it too soon to talk about it? Nah. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the perfect satire. It's it's exactly what Broadway needed. And it we're going to get into it, but it was it's a perfect time for it. So rather than rambling, let's break this down. I want to start with costumes. Oh my gosh, the costumes. So, they're beautiful, they're simple, they're gorgeous. <laughs> this is not one of those shows like Follies or something where it's like, the detail beaded work. And no, 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 no. This, you, you know what time period it is. We're, we're going to be blatant, we're going to be obvious. Everyone's got these beautiful silhouettes. Um, <laughs> Roger's gowns are brilliant. One of my favorite is when they first meet Roger and he's getting ready for the choreographer's ball. And it's like, that gown is you. Really, I don't think so. I'm supposed to be the Grand Duchess Anastasia, but I feel more like the Chrysler Building. And it looks like the Chrysler mm-hmm. Building. And I'm like, that's that tongue-in-cheek. We know what you're supposed to be, but we also know what you're supposed to be. And it- Well, and I think it works so well because, like, I mean, there is a ton of beautifully gorgeous beaded gowns and stuff because that's what the time period was trying to recreate. Oh, yeah, Ula's gowns and, so, and but stuff, they, yeah. But they don't stand out because they're not the focus of the show, yet exactly. they they make the perfect, like, complement to it. It's like having a breeze of cool air on a warm summer's day as you watch the sunset. It just all hits perfectly. I would love to see the dry cleaner who got these costumes, by the way. You know, pick them up after like a dress rehearsal, and it's like, oh, cute! Look at these beautiful gowns. Oh, look at these suits. And then it's like, these are full-on Nazi suits. <laughs> these are stormtrooper suits. I mean, thank the goodness details they have weren't their... missed. <laughs> you know? Thank goodness they have their own dry cleaning. It, but it, they, not, every detail was covered, and then even in like the the detail, the the even subtler details. Um, when we meet all the designers, all of the gay designers. It's it's like a modern theater village people. And one of my favorite moments is when the choreographer comes on. And look, if you're if you're a big theater buff, if you're not, here's a fun fact. So we have in the theater what's called dance belts. They're special undergarments <laughs> that are meant uh, particularly for men 
I think only for men. There are yeah. Um, that are meant to hide um, certain parts. Well, they're of meant the to men. smooth it out. Yeah, so that you don't have protruding nether regions. And when the choreographer comes down, he has a clear bulge, and that is the, the point. It's poking fun at that. Now look, everyone's laughing at the joke that he has a bulge, but if you're in the theater, you're going ha 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 ha. There's a joke and a joke and a joke. There are layers to this, well, and they're incorporating that in the design element. You know, mm-hmm. you knew that was thought of during the process of how can we make this moment even funnier. Well, and what I really appreciate about this show, which we can definitely talk up more about later, is that. There's a reason why the original movie, the musical, and the uh, movie of the musical are all the exact same thing. It's because it was so nice. They did it twice. They did it it thrice. You know what I mean? And also, kudos to the people who had to make these costumes. Because if you've ever gotten to see the show in a full production, Little Old Lady Land. (laughs) It's the same dress and hat and gloves and knee highs and everything. It's the same outfit. Every little old lady apparently dresses the same way. I'm going to look the same as everybody else after 65. Like, I'm excited. It's brilliant. (laughs) Which leads me to the next thing, which is the set. Now, these are... Okay, this goes from... This stems from clever to just, like... Again, the simplicity makes it awesome. Um... We, we, they had these sets, you know, when we opened, we're at the theater, you, you knew exactly where you were and had that like art deco, I don't want to say comic book feel, but you know, very retro old world feel. Cause of course, you know, 1959, mm-hmm. um, but we knew where we were at and when the scenes would change, you didn't have these big, I'm going to call them Lincoln center sets. Cause every time I've seen a show at Lincoln center, they just oh, flex yeah. how big their stage and that is. They didn't have to do that. There's like we're gonna put like a few walls and a few pieces, and you and you. And they put, were flats. And your your brain finished the rest of this, and you saw the fully realized place, and it was brilliant. You know when Bloom goes back to his accounting firm, you know you have a few accountants there, and they have some dim lighting, but you could just see how depressing it was. Um, it was just brilliant, you know. Um, then you had like the springtime for Hitler set. And you see that joke and that campiness. And the thing I love the best is they bring in these mirrors at first. And you're like, okay, this is, I mean, I'm just going to say it. it has like this S&M kind of bondage feel to it, which it's already kind of had with the whips and the girls and in the sausage costumes, which we should have mentioned, the different foods that Germany's known for. And it's kind of sexy and ooh, there's sexual tension there. But you've got these stormtroopers and, you know, clearly it's like sexually repressed Aryan race guy and these mirrors come in you're like all right and then they kind of lift up and as they're singing springtime for hitler these guys form a swastika and thanks to the mirrors you see the swastika rotating on stage and you're like okay that's clever because you know it's, it's one of those we want you to see this detail um and i thought that was great one of my favorite <laughs> And I love it. I mean, I hate it because it's at the end of the show. But what I love is when they show at the end that they've made it. Spoiler alert. Well, you've already heard this at the beginning. The spoiler alert. At the end when they've made it, they're showing all the shows that, you know, Bielisak and Bloom have done. They spoof essentially um, a bunch of famous shows, but they make them all Jewish. Mm-hmm. And they're putting up all, and so there's all these marquees in, in, in this like scrim, I'll say, or mm-hmm. different places that they light up at different times. So you've got like cats, but it's K-A-T-Z, you know, mm-hmm. or things like that, you know, and, and it's hilarious. And I'm like, that's, that's clever. I, you know, I'd like to see if they remounted it now, like what other shows would they put up there? It, it's those little details that you're just like, ah, Mm-hmm. Uh, Easter eggs is what I would say. Yes, e- that is definitely a good definition of Easter eggs. Yeah, good look job, at Andrew. Me. I can do that. <laughs> so speaking of lighting things up, I want, let's talk about the lighting. Oh my gosh, the lighting. Ugh. I. Well, for one, it's just very like clean lighting, which I know sounds really strange, but it just makes everything nice and bright. Um, it was clear as to what time of day we were in, whether it was daytime or nighttime, whether we were inside or outside. Um, and it sounds like a minor detail, but it it's not just about lighting the actor so you can see them. It's giving you... A sense of mood, a yeah, sense of time. As we're progressing and we're moving through, that really 
if mm-hmm. they're filling in those little bit of blanks that help your brain continue the story on. Well, and I I personally think that the more clean the lighting looks, the more it reads as comedy. Exactly. Yes. Because I if you start agree. getting too many gobos and too many shadows, it starts to read more dramatic. But the fact that you can get nice clean crisp lighting yes it just sends you into comedy land like right away also when you have like the the opposites playing so for instance i love little old lady land when we're going to little old lady land we know what we're doing here okay this is a whole song and it's cute and it's fun guys he's sleeping with a bunch of little old ladies to raise money it's these roses and pink tones and 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 Bialystok just looks lovable and so happy and always want to pinch his cheeks and fire down below you know it's cute and it's fun and you bounce out with their blue costumes it just looks great and i'm like this is clever because mm-hmm. this is a horrible 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> despicable thing he's doing and the lighting choice they made it it's almost like a children's tv show uh-huh. you know I, yes. But then you counter that with, and I, again, I think it's almost borderline comic book where he's in jail and we've got this gray, it's got kind of like that incandescent light feeling. He's got that swinging light bulb, mm-hmm. which I love because I'm like, okay, yeah, because we're going to have light bulbs in a jail cell. All right. But that's cool. I mean, listen, it was 1959. I guess. <laughs> but then, and then back to your gobo point though, now they've got the these jail bars which I think helps to establish because he's got one. I think he's in a cage, but it just it helps in that big stage make it feel. It really makes it feel much smaller, mm-hmm. and you feel that trap feeling. And I'm like, we didn't have to bring in forty different set pieces or clothes. You know, make it super black or and dark and everything. They use these different lighting effects to make you have a feeling to feel what the actor felt. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of light bulb and. Jail cell. <laughs> Can we talk about walkers and props? Oh my gosh. And like, I just love this idea of, okay, well, so first off, to talk about like walkers with the tennis balls on it, I just want to know like, did they do research to find out when people started putting tennis balls on the bottom of their walkers? I got to be honest, I don't remember if tennis balls are on the bottom of the walkers, but I'm going to, it's been that long since I, I saw I thought them. they were. But I hope they I are. I know for sure they are in the movie, which. Listen, if you want to see, if you've never seen the show, and you want to see, like, a good a, the, one of the greatest, like, moments in theater history, Google the producers at the Tony Awards. They did um, uh, Along Came Bialy, the Little Old Lady Land song at the Tony Awards, and they do the whole dance with the walkers, and I'm just looking, I watch this, and I'm like, Susan Stroman, you are a genius, because anyone that can incorporate walkers the way that they did... Look, it's a bit. We see a woman with a walker, and it's like, okay, we're not just going to watch her walk across the Oh, no, 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 no. This is going to be a full-fledged production number, and it's going to be centered around this walker. And it works. And I'm just like, I could watch this all day. It's brilliant. It's ridiculously brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I think a lot of people walk away from the show, absolutely adoring, and everybody, I don't care who you are, you're going to love it. The pigeons. Okay? The pigeons. Especially little Adolf with his wing flop, you know, <laughs> that flops up. These animatronic pigeons um, that sing and everything with Franz Liebkin. I mean... Are and, they animatronic or are they puppets? Oh, uh, no, no. They're, they're animatronic, I feel like. I okay. feel I don't, I don't think there's someone behind it with their hand up at going... Rrr. No, but it could be like on... Sticks and oh yeah no 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 I'm uh, well that's what I mean I mean it, it's not someone's hand puppet it's oh no 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 yeah. yeah 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 but you know I as far as I know I mean look someone listening to this could have worked on the show and been like you're wrong you're wrong and for that I'm sorry I never worked on the show but um it's so again it's simple and it's clever it's not so low budget that we're like watching you know I don't know I I don't, I don't want to trash community theater by any stretch of the imagination. We're not watching a construction paper theater kind yeah. of thing. But we're also, you know, not having to get that, like, hologramic kind of thing. It's just something simple, and I'm like, that's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I just really, I love how clever the music and the book go together. I just, like... So, you know, I, like we said, Mel Brooks wrote music and lyrics and help with the book. And mm-hmm. it goes so 
well like together. there are there are jokes written into the music and that's one of the things that i just absolutely love and he brings in other jokes from other things like one of my favorite things in the king of broadway you've got this thing in the second verse where he goes i used to be the king and everyone goes the king the king of old broadway and the it's guy playing the, the king. yeah it's good to be the king yeah and i was like that's not from this show that's from another mel brooks show and i'm like that's funny. Well, that's and a even ca- just... That's a callback. Right? Well, and also, even, like, just the music, no words at all, there are just different little points that are just... There are jokes in them. I... I'm trying to figure out I the best way to describe it. I for um, Springtime for Hitler, when Roger's performing, it is the... It's like Judy Garland at the palace. Like, it is hardcore... Where he gets out there and, you know, he makes his entrance and then he just gets up there and he throws his hand back and everyone starts to laugh. It's it's that Judy Garland-esque, like, I have arrived and he gets up there, hi myself. And he's, you know, having a field day. He even makes the Ethel Merman joke, you know. There's all these great Broadway just nods in all the music, mm-hmm. you know. We're, we're having a field day at that and I want to be a producer. It's it's almost like a Ziegfeld Follies number. Oh, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And the song. Oh, it's brilliant. So the music only enhances it. it and we're going to take you to school just real quick for a minute, okay? Because <laughs> we got degrees in theater. Right. In musical theater, okay, in a, in a successful musical, the only reason why people sing is because the emotion of the moment or what they're feeling is so great that words alone... Cannot. cannot express it. We have to sing. And this is exactly it. We have there's something going on that words aren't gonna be enough. We gotta sing it. And that's exactly what happened. Well like, and what's can- really nice is it's still it are it's some of them are just these mundane things, you know, but they still turn there's so much emotion behind it. There's such these impactful moments that we have to turn them into singing. The audition alone is absolutely hilarious. Everyone gets these like five second bits and I'm like I want to hear more of these songs. I want to hear more of the little wooden boy, you know? Mm-hmm. And it, it cracks me up. And the other thing that makes this work leads us into the next one. The direction. Guys, Susan, you, when you see a Susan Sherman show, you know it's a Susan Sherman show. She is one of those directors that exists that when, when you see her work, you know exactly it's a Susan Sherman show. Bullets over Broadway, for instance. You, just, you know it. And... This show, she gave a master class in direction with it. You know, there was never too much of anything. There was never too little of anything. She pushed the bar just enough to make everything work. Mm-hmm. Like you watch that show, and I want to find, I want to find room to critique and go, "Well, you could have done but this." There's and I'm no, like, there's just it's it's it's. Uh, I want to say the word synergy, but I feel no, like that's it, wrong. But it's like every single element comes together in the most perfect way. At all times. Everything leads to each other. Well, and that's one thing that for me uh, makes a successful show is something that I get sucked into the world completely and I'm not able to pick apart the different elements. Uh, Like, as we've been even trying to break down the little elements, we keep going back and forth to other pieces because they all just meld so well together. And you've got these big personalities and these great actors in the show. You know, Nathan Lane, Matthew Broadwick, um... Uh, Brad Oscar, um, Caddy, uh, Caddy Huffman. Uh-huh, and um, Gary Tara, Beach. Gary Beach. You know, fantastic, fantastic cast. One person doesn't overshadow the other. Mm-hmm. Everyone's character is on the same plane. Everyone's, it's not competing for the limelight more than the other, where everyone is working together, striving for the same goal. It works and then, um, the other thing I love is the awkward moments and the tensions. They always arrive right on the right time. Mm-hmm. And the jokes land together as well. A lot of the jokes, it's like that awkward fart in church, but it's that welcome fart in church, you know? Uh-huh. Um, I love the Elizabeth, <laughs> Adolf Elizabeth Hitler. Yeah, that was his name, you know? And mm-hmm. it's like, okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. How do you well, relate and, to that? And you really get to just like enter the world and everyone just, it's, it's almost like an improv when everything is yes and. Yes. Everything is yes anded in it, even if it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it's great. And while we're talking about Susan Sherman, finally, I want to talk about the choreography. 
We've mentioned it before, but anyone that can incorporate walkers into a big dance number, I mean, is something special. Like, where do you go from there, right? I mean, hang up your hat, you're done. That's it. That's that's the, the apex. But the dancing in the show, it, it's, ama- it's amazing because what, what I love is this show, how do I put it? I, it's not a dance-heavy show, but it is a dance-heavy show. And what, what, what I mean is the dance is heavy with the ensemble, and they do it so well. And they accent and add in so well where they need it. They act as a true chorus. Mm-hmm. And it literally is like that cherry on top, sprinkles on everything. It adds that glitter to the show. That extra little oomph that makes it feel like a golden era musical. Right, but is it... Well, and what I really love about it is it's almost like uh, anytime you've listened to a uh, song that gets sweetened it's like we were listening to the song today i think it was uh, luke brian that was brian that was singing and it's a song about him liking this girl but there's a girl singing in the background with him because it just adds to that fully rounded sound yeah and that's how the that's how the ensemble goes because sometimes yeah it's about them but also other times they're just enhancing what we're seeing on stage and then keeping in line with the whole love letter to broadway You've got moments in the choreography that are complementing different shows. You know, when we're doing I Want to Be a Producer, we've got this great 40-second street moment where they're coming down the stairs with the lights. Um, when they're doing King of Broadway, you've got this great Fiddler on the Roof moment. You know, there's great Chicago moments uh, with some Fosse-esque movements in there. It's, it's truly brilliant. They set out a goal and a vision, and they went for it, and it worked. Mm-hmm. A few more fun facts about the show. Obviously, we can't skip over mentioning the notable cast members again. Uh, The show has seen including the amazing Nathan Lane, as well as Matthew Broderick, Gary Beach, Caddy Huffman, Brad Oscar, Angie Schwarer, and Roger Bart. Also worth noting, after the original cast left, it was detrimental to the production's success, which prompted Lane and Broderick to return for a limited engagement which broke their own record for highest ticket sales in one single day, going to $3.5 million. Two other actors of note to mention, Jason Alexander and Martin Short, headlined the leading roles while the tour was in the city of L.A. Finally, on the TV show Curb Your Enthusiasm, the producers was featured in almost every single episode of season four. In the episode... Uh, Mel Brooks offers Larry David the part of Max and Ben Stiller the part of Leo. When David and Stiller have a falling out, Stiller is replaced by David Schwimmer and David keeps forgetting his lines and ad-libs to keep the audience laughing. It is revealed that Brooks cast David believing that he would fail and end the show um, to free Brooks from its success. Uh, And then Brooks's real-life wife and... uh, and uh, Bancroft laugh at how bad David is, um, but to their dismay, David ends up being a huge hit. So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. First off, it's the first big blockbuster of the 21st century. Yes. It's the first mega hit of the 21st century. It had the most Tony Award nominations Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. Since then, Hamilton surpassed it. But... It still has the most Tony Awards won by any show, play or musical, sending it 12. Just those three right there. Check, check, check. I mean, it's been 20 years and it's still, I mean, it's the producers. Oh it's the gosh, show it I feel like. It has been 20 years. It's been 20. I know, the lockdown and everything. Oh it feels gosh. like it's been 15, but it's been 20 years. And it still that, hasn't been topped. That's the show that every other show now is is raised against. And, you know, I know. I would like to think our listeners are excited one day when we do our Hamilton show. <laughs> right. But the, I'm I'm the guy over here, and you're the girl over there, and we've seen 
oh lord between us over at least 200 broadway shows at least at least and you know hamilton didn't beat the producers mm-hmm. and i'm the guy that's like i want to see the show that is that, able to that, beat the that producers. tops the producers and t- that's gonna be a show but those three right there are just i mean that's three mountains to climb for some show Right, and I think it it raised the bar on 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 musicals in general and on musical comedy. I mean, I don't want to say that musical comedy, you know, before wasn't let's say smart, but I mean, I think that after the producers, like the wit and the jokes and the humor, it was a whole nother level, you know. It wasn't just enough to come on and tell a joke or to throw a pie or, you know, how do I put it? To me, there's like kind of like two kinds of comedy. There's that slapstick comedy, vaudeville-esque. There's kind of the comedy that almost offends you. You know, we're going to see a bad language. Yes, like I feel like I feel like Mel Brooks is that perfect combination between. Yes, well, because you have like on one side, you have like the Neil Simon type you know yes, yes, place yes, but yes. then on the other side you have dave Chappelle. yes you know what yes, i mean yes, yes. and mel brooks goes right in between exactly and so now going forward after the producers it was like okay it's not enough just to be one or the other you have to be able to master both and musical comedies going forward that's what they're going to be measured against you know and can not only can you make me laugh but i feel like can- audiences left going i understood that joke Yes. Well, I feel like audiences felt like they were smart. They were given kind of, you know, they were still allowed to use their imaginations to help fill Mm -hmm. in the gap. And so it really just kind of bred this, like, every man also kind of giving them that complex of being smart and superior. It, you know, because I feel like most of the time with musical comedies, you either get the highbrow or the lowbrow. Yes. And this totally gave both. It gave the lowbrow, you know, this idea of, being highbrow and it gave the highbrow enough to be like oh i'm laughing at a sex joke you're you're feeding me exactly (laughs) my next point which is it opened the door to subject matter that we really didn't talk about in the theater yes um and what i like is it speaking of highbrow lowbrow it's showing that screw your brows yeah (laughs) we're all gonna laugh at the same thing Mm -hmm. we all think we all kind of genuinely as humanity think this is terrible, and we all genuinely as humanity think this is funny. Now look, on a micro level, that might be different. There are certain minor things that we think are different, but as a whole, there are certain things we see or experience that we're like, ha, 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 you know? Well, it's like there's universal goods and universal evils. Yeah. And this kind of, you know... And all of a sudden, we're laughing, you know, where we were raised, World War II, Nazis, and all that is bad. Now we're laughing at them, and I'm like, yeah... That whole joke of too soon, it's like, okay, 40, 50 years has passed. Well, and I think that it really drives the point home that, like, I feel like, you know, I obviously we've never talked to Mel Brooks about this, but I feel like you heal through humor. Everyone heals differently. Yeah. And And so at some point we have to laugh at it. Because it takes away, it takes away the seriousness of it all. Absolutely. If you want to beat someone, take away their power, you can laugh at them. Yeah, it's like it's like with Harry Potter, you know, to scare the um, the Bogart. No, the, the Bogart. Bogart. You know, you have to make it ridiculous. Right, you know, right. it's kind of that. I feel like that's what this subject matter is. It's like you know, oh yeah, there's sexism. There's you know, uh, there's Nazis, and you know what? Taking we're just advantage gonna, of the elderly. We're, yeah, we're just gonna make fun of it all and. But the other get thing is, it points it at the end. It says, you know. These are all terrible and horrible things, but does anybody get hurt in the end? And you kind of go, I forgive all these horrible traits from people because at the end of the day, nobody really got hurt, you know? So, um, so this leads us to our next point, the societal impact. And the first one I want to talk about, it's interesting that you... Spoke both times about the amount of money the show made. $3 million and $3.5 million, respectively. On one single day. Yeah. Each. Um, the show was making ridiculous amounts of money. Now, for all of you out there, if I get this information wrong, please send me an email at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Please feel free, because I believe this is right. But back then, back in my day, 
I believe at that time, um, you know, internet sales were limited of ticket sales. So at that time, you went to the box office, you could call Telecharger Ticketmaster, or you can go to three different locations, Chelsea Pier, Times Square, or One World Trade Center, which is where TKTS was, to purchase tickets. <clears throat> what the producers were battling were people were going and buying blocks of tickets at $60, $75, and then turning around and selling them for $350, $400. You know, scalpers. And they weren't having it. They were like, no, no, that's not going to be a thing. So knowing that they had a surefire hit that anyone's going to pay any amount of money, give up their firstborn, they decided, and this is, as I recall, a first in Broadway history. They're like, no, we're going to raise our prices to fight scalpers. And suddenly people were paying four or $500 for a ticket to see the producers buying from the show, not from a scalper. And the producers figured, to hell with it, if you're going to spend that kind of money, might as well come to the people who actually created and are doing the show Mm-hmm. Not to these people that are right. peddling. Well, because here's the thing. Like, Broadway shows are expensive. They're expensive to put on. They're expensive to run. Um, You know, and so might as well, you know, try to make as much money as you can while still trying to stop people from basically profiting off of your hard work. Yeah, but most Broadway shows, the reason why they're expensive, I mean, you probably, you see a lot of people who put on the show, but there's a lot of people behind the scenes and whatnot that that you don't get to see that have to be paid too. And remember, everyone that works in the theater is also union. God bless the union. Everyone deserves a livable wage. And not to be political, but if you haven't noticed, the cost of living's gone up, but the minimum wage hasn't. So thanks to the union, they've made, they've made sure that people who work in the theater have maintained a livable wage. So that ergo, the price of tickets have gone up. But the thing is, with the producers doing this, suddenly other shows started doing it to counteract scalpers. Mm-hmm. And it, op- it started a whole new thing where it was like, oh, hang on a second. This is okay to do. So if you had a hit, why not? Right. Well, and it really just started changing the whole concept of going out to a Broadway show mm-hmm. like you're spending so much money on it like yeah you may used to make like a big deal of it but now it's like a big to do like it wasn't something will, you did in like a layover like oh I'm gonna just go catch a Broadway no, show no it's this like, was like people people nowadays will stand all day in their sweaty clothes whatever in the heat waiting yep. just to get entered into the raffle not raffle the, the lottery, the lottery yeah. just to possibly win tickets and then you have barely enough time to go from your sweaty line spot to get to the theater so like you're not even getting all dressed up necessarily mm-hmm. because you're so excited to just finally be able to get the show because of how hard it was to get the ticket i remember seeing chicago shortly after the book of mormon opened and going to pick up our tickets that morning, and there was already a line that morning for the Book of Mormon lottery, mm-hmm. right? In the morning. Lottery's not till the F that evening. Fast forward, you know, about five, six years, I remember seeing Dear Evan Hansen on Broadway, and we leave the theater, and there's already a line that night for the next day's lottery. Mm-hmm. It. This is what kind of came about from the producers where it was like we're going to start this whole new it just ushered in a new idea of what like you said what the theater was and how we kind of treated this experience not just a show but an experience yeah it's not like you know oh yeah i'm gonna go get some tickets it's like oh my gosh like i had to work to get these tickets i'm gonna savor the experience this is something that is special which is also why, on a tangent, I get pissed off when people get on their cell phones or they're talking because I'm like, you know, you may not be interested in this, but for someone, this could be the one and only show that they could get enough money together for, and this is a life-changing experience. I think that the Broadway theater is just such a great, great, like, everyone should get one in their life to get to see because it will change you forever. Mm-hmm. Um but then with, you know, with the time of the show opening and the advent of technology, it led to other things like obviously online ticket sales, which is probably what we all do now. And still to this day, there are further um, advances 
um, in ticket sales, and it started with this battle for to battle of the scalpers from the producers. Um, yeah. For instance, Ticketmaster does uh, what I call legal scalping, uh, <laughs> where you can resell your tickets. However, part of what you resell it for still goes to the show. So if I buy Hamilton tickets at $90 and I decide to sell them for $400, so that's an upsell of $310, 50% of what I'm actually selling it for still goes to the show. So it's a way that these shows, have, these, these different merchants have started to counteract scalpers. Um, in the UK, and I love this, when you buy your tickets for certain shows like Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, for instance, again, this is what I've been told, so if I'm wrong, emails, but you buy your tickets with a card, your ticket is on the card, and when you arrive at the theater, yeah, just kinda... you swipe your credit card, and then they print your ticket there, and you, and that that's it. You yeah, can't go it's out the, and sell it's your It's kind ticket. of the same way you would do for sporting events, too. Exactly, yeah, and they're... it's a way that, so that you can't resell your ticket. Once you buy it, you buy it. So people can't come in and buy blocks of tickets and then go out and resell them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's absolutely brilliant because, you know, no one should be making money off of a show they had nothing to do with. And you shouldn't keep people out from from seeing the theater. That's my TED talk. Anyway, back to the, and it started with the producers, you know, someone finally sending it up to scalpers and finding them. So it was, uh, we want to take you back. Remember, this was a show that opened in the spring of 2001. So and we all know 2001 was a, a landmark year, not just because the producers was a history making show, but of course, shortly after the terrible tragedy of 9-11 happened. Yeah. And I mean, crushing is yeah. the only word that I can think of to describe it. Yeah. Um, you know, it changed so much about everyday life. It changed so much about the landscape. It was of- the first time. And th- as we record this podcast on what we hope to God willing be post-COVID, right? Mm-hmm. It was the first time Broadway was empty. Yeah. You know, you, you look back at images after 9-11 when Broadway was closed, when it was dark. And it was empty. And, of course, pre-COVID, uh, you, your heart sank and you're like, oh, God, I hope you never have to see that. And you think about Broadway's been closed for over a year. Mm-hmm. I'm just getting teary-eyed thinking about it. Well, because if you think about it, like, through history, really the only time the lights ever go completely out on Broadway is when they're doing a tribute to someone. Yeah. Or during World War Two when there were the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But exactly. And the streets were never empty and they were just so barren at this point and uh, there's a great clip of rudy giuliani who was the mayor and it was a few days after 9-11 and he was encouraging people he's like come to new york come come visit new york come see come see a show you might have a good chance of getting tickets to the producers now right well and there's <laughs> i can also think of the commercial that they Are you made thinking with- about the I Love New York where they had all the cast in Times Square? Uh-huh, from all the different shows. And, of course, it's the iconic Nathan Lane's voice. Come to New York and let's get on with the show. I think it was three or four days later. And, and again, another source, Broadway, the American Musical. And when the cast was asked, you know, or when they were going back and they thought, is it... Are we okay to laugh again? And there's a great moment when SNL came back. I think it was the week after 9-11. Um, Rudy Giuliani was on the show with some firefighters and that. And, you know, they were doing the opening. And Lorne Michaels was, you know, saying something. And he said, well, can we be funny? Mm-hmm. And Rudy Giuliani says, why start now? You know? <laughs> Right. Well, and it goes back to that humor through uh, healing through humor. Exactly. And so it was it was a nice escape. Yeah. That was already set up and already familiar. Like that's, I think, one of the most beautiful things about the timing of the producers was it was something that we knew before and it was something that was the same after. It was exactly what the doctor ordered to allow Mm -hmm. us to to laugh, to heal. And it wasn't something that we could laugh at like a current event. It was something of the before time mm-hmm. um but what i as as a theater person as an actor what i i truly cherish is cherish is in the moment of great darkness and despair you know everyone was asking when is the right time to laugh when is the right time when can we move on 
you know, the theater answered the call a few days later and we didn't like come out and was like, okay, is everyone okay? Are we feeling safe? Are we, we came out, we did our job and our job was to make everyone laugh and be happy Entertain and feel. And forget your troubles for just a little bit. And man, Sometimes September can't that. come here fast enough when Broadway returns and the world just needs to laugh and heal and feel better. Another, this is another show um, that brought multiple generations to the, to the same show. And you mentioned it because uh, you had the original film version mm-hmm. with, um, oh, I can't remember his name. He played Willy Wonka. What's his name? I can't. Gene Wilder. Oh, Gene Wilder. Oh, Gene oh, my Wilder. Gosh. Uh, and Zero Mastro. Mm-hmm. And then you had this musical, and then of course later on you had the the mu- movie musical. It brought mm-hmm. multiple generations to the theater. Well, and it just was something that felt familiar to many different generations. It's humor that everyone got. Because like I feel like the the producers for my day and age, and I guess my day and age is still happening, and it's right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I feel like this is a this is one of those stories that just. It feels so classic. You know, this is... It's a timeless story. Yeah. It really is. And it let us laugh at things that we weren't sure we were allowed to laugh at. Mm-hmm. It reminded us that, you know, it's okay to poke fun at yourself. It's okay to laugh at evil. It. That's exactly it. Mel Brooks literally said the best... Was telling us the best way to diffuse evil is to laugh at it. It's to stand up to the evil things in the world and laugh at its face. And that's how you take its power. And I thought that, especially with the timing of the show, when it existed on Broadway, that was just such an important message. So finally, is the show still relevant? I I mean, we don't have to spend 40 minutes on this. I think when the I, answer is... Yes, yeah. it will always be relevant. It is always a show that can be done in any setting. I feel like the St. James Theater is current... I mean, Springsteen on Broadway is playing there, and I think American Utopia is going there in the fall. But hey, wealthy producers out there, I feel like a spring revival of the producers at the St. James is not a terrible idea. Not you know, I think we all need that after the... 20 months we've had of this chaos. It's going to be relevant. It's going to continue to be relevant. It's, we need to continue that message of the best way to overcome terrible things, terrible people, terrible situations purely is to laugh. Everything and everyone, there's bad nature in there, but there's also good. Mm-hmm. But we well, all are connected is, through humor. Right. It's, life's not black and white. Um, there's many different shades of gray, so we might as well laugh while we're here. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing these shows, or this show. Yeah, so I've seen the show twice. I saw it once in 2008 here in Salt Lake City at Pioneer Theater, uh, and then I've had the great fortune of seeing the show on Broadway in 2006. I haven't yet actually had the chance to see the show live on stage, um, but I am very much looking forward to it soon, so please someone revive it. (laughs) So then I guess I have the stories. Um, The first one I want to say, I had a best friend in high school named Alex Watson. And we were doing our drama club's Tony Awards. um, My junior year, his sophomore year. And we were doing the number we can do it. I was playing Bloom. He was playing Max. Um, This is a side detail. I promise it's going to come back. That year, we were doing a fundraiser of these candy bars, trying to raise money from the drama department, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we're doing the scene. It's really good. It's really funny. And when I'm having my freak out over my blanket, he threw water, and it was real water. I wasn't expecting that, but I was like, cool. And he really slapped me. It's going over great. Well, as we get to the audio cue, the audio cue doesn't go. The sound person forgets hit play on our song. So we immediately, both being improv actors, just start improv in the middle of the scene and start to sell candy bars. 
and we totally start to sell candy bars to our audience members. Finally, music comes on, we do our number, everything works out great, but it was so much fun. It was so much fun. Um, still one of my favorite performances from high school. Um, I think one of my favorite stories that comes from the show. Oh, I'm going to get all teary eyed thinking about it. Um, I got to meet Gary Beach, my one of my heroes again. Um, when I was in New York in 2006, on my high school trip again, the producers was playing, and we saw that Gary Beach was in the show, so um, we got tickets to it. My mom and I saw the show. He was in it. We sent a note backstage hoping to see him the night we saw the show. Unfortunately, he left prior to um, us getting down for the stage door, which was a bummer. The next night, we were seeing the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, and we did a talk back, and the timing of the shows worked out perfect because we did our talk back, and then we ran the six blocks from the Circle and Square Theater to the St. James. I'm just laughing thinking You're just about thinking about mom my mom running. running. <laughs> Terrible human being. I'm sorry, Lori. Okay. I'm sorry. I ran. My mom... <laughs> briskly shuffled uh <laughs> love you mom anyway we got to the saint james theater just as the show was finishing now any of you who've ever been to the saint james theater and stage door you know there are two stage door exits there's one kind of by the main hall that takes you to the lobby and there's another on the east side kind of near the jujamson theater offices so we're both two different doors okay um Fun fact for all of you playing at home, the east door is the actual stage door. It's the door that leads actually to the stage. The one over by the lobby is leads to the lobby and then all the way around the stage. But anyway, um, my mom's over on the east one. I'm by the main one, do, 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 doing our thing. Gary Beach comes out the east door, sees my mom. He'd gotten the note from the night before that day, sees her. All these people rush him. He just ignores them. See, and says hi to my mom. How are you? Small chat. And she goes, I'm great. Can you give me one second? My son's over on the other side. Let me go get him. Again, there's all these people clamoring for his attention. And he goes, no, 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 no. Let's go over and walk over to him. He walks over to me. Tony Award winning Gary Beach. Walks straight up to me. I am starstruck. Again, more people are trying to get his autograph. And he just gestures for me to come over to the side and the other side of the barrier. And we just start talking. And he just, for about 45 minutes, we just chat. We catch up. He is, he was the sweetest, kindest guy in the world. Um, he then asked, you know, what I was up to. And I told him about high school, senior year, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, will you be coming back to New York anytime soon? And I said, well, um, I did. <laughs> I auditioned for choir because they were going to New York City the next year. And I got in. That's the only reason why I did choir. <laughs> And he goes, oh, you're coming back to New York next year. Great. Well, I'm doing Les Mis next year. You should definitely come and see the show if you can. I was like, I'm buying tickets to Les Mis, apparently. <laughs> um, yeah, and he got a picture with me, and he just said, I look forward to seeing you in the spring. Thank you so much for seeing me. It's so good to stay connected with you. And I was I was just touched by him. You know, He remembered you after all this time. Yeah. What kind of an act? I mean, oh, that man was absolutely amazing. Um. This show opened my eyes to musical comedy and it just inspired and solidified my love for the theater and what I wanted to do. I remember seeing the show in New York and just when I saw The King of Broadway, I went, I kind of like this. I kind of want to do this. And then when I saw We Can Do It live, I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do forever. That That was my like... You know, some people were like, I was 12 and I saw the show. And I was like, no, I was I was 17. I was in the back of St. James Theater. I saw We Can Do It after doing it at my school's Drama Club Awards. And I went, this is what I want to do, you know. Um, and the other thing is, and for all my big people out there, this show let me see roles that I could play. And I think it's, you know, there's a lot of talk in the theater about representation, which I don't want to take anything away from the conversation about representation, particularly about race and that. But I do want to say, when it comes to the body size and body type, there is a conversation to be had. Because I do remember going to school, and I do remember being the one guy that was big, 
And it was hard. It was really, really hard finding roles that you, you know, besides being, I mean, I'm fine being funny, but you know, um, whenever I met someone, they're like, oh, so what, you like play Shrek? Or you play Nicely Nicely? And I'm like, there's more than that, you know? And in this show, I went, oh, I could be a Max. I could be a Franz. I could I could be a, you know, a Roger Debris. Like, it, it made me realize that there's more out there for a guy like me. And that meant the world to me. So this this show meant a lot. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. I sincerely hope that you'll be able to catch the producers at a theater near you this fall. We just want to mention as well that as things are opening up, we encourage all of you to support the arts, whether it be local, regional, or of course, Broadway. Now more than ever, it's time to uh, it's time for us to raise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work and will have a special announcement regarding this very soon. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Uh, Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by U.S. Army Blues, The Good Louds, Milton Arias, Mella, and Billy Murray.